You're listening to the Around the Lens podcast, the home of high-quality, roundtable, visual journalism discussion about the news, topics, and gear related to our career field. Now, here's the host of our show, David J. Murphy. Hello and welcome to episode 230 of Around the Lens. I'm your host, David J. Murphy. Joining me this week are my co-host, Zach Roberts, a photojournalist based out of New York State. Hello, Zach. How are you? I'm alive. I'm alive. Not how bad, are you doing? Not bad. Our guest this week is Tara Pixley. She is a PhD in photojournalism and a photojournalist herself, also teaching the, the, the craft. Tara, how are you? Or Tara, how are you? Doing well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, on, now, David. I don't think my um, reading of your title was uh, adequate. I want to know from you. Can you tell us a little more about your background and your career? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I have a twenty-year career in visual journalism, um, working as a photojournalist, a writer, a photo editor for Newsweek, CNN, uh, Creative Loafing, and Alternative News Weekly in Atlanta. And I have a PhD in communication, actually, from UC San Diego. But my emphasis in my PhD was studying visual journalism and trying to sort of understand um, how to connect all of the scholarship around visual culture and critical race theory and media studies to the work that we do in the field as visual journalists. So I, I now am a professor of journalism. I teach photography and video and media production and also critical and ethical issues in journalism at Loyola Marymount University. And I am also an independent visual journalist and one of the co-founders and board members of Authority Collective, which is an organization that uh, produces resources, builds community, and helps the the sort of communities of women, non-binary, and trans photographers of color in the various visual media industries. Cool. Cool. Well, that is my long-winded introduction of yeah, my work. I think that does work. much more justice <laughs> than my little rinky-dink uh, introduction. So, good. Glad to have you. We got a lot of great topics to talk about today, and we don't have too much time to talk about them in because, you know, we got a couple people who are going to turn into pumpkins and have to get out of here. So let's just get started. Um, our first topic this week is about the protests. So, you know, they've been going on for quite a while now. Uh, you know, besides the Occupy protests, I can't think of a longer um, string or series of protests or uh, extended amount of protests on, on a specific topic. Um, I could be wrong. Somebody could enlighten me if they, they know better. But, uh, you know, again, this has been going on for quite a while. And I kind of, you know, for those of you who are covering it, you know, because I know you guys, I've seen your, your work. I know you've been out there, Zach and Tara, you've both been covering it. Does there come a point where you get a fatigue with the subject of protests? And if you do, how do you sort of um, counteract that? And how do you kind of cover a protest day in and day out and take it from different angles? Uh, we'll start, of course, as always, with our, our guest. Uh, whenever we have a, a, a new guest on the show, we always start go to them first. So, Tara, kind of talk to me a little bit about your sort of um, experience with the protests and sort of how you have covered it over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually a really great question. I, I wonder if photojournalists experience that level of fatigue on any of the subjects that we tend to cover because so many of us sort of specialize. Um, but I think certainly my answer for this, and I imagine a potential answer for many photojournalists would be that every movement develops and evolves over time. And so from I, my first went out to photograph uh, the protests here in LA on May 30th, and uh, the last protest I covered was I've done four or five 
over the last several weeks and I kind of took this week off to focus on other projects they needed to get done. Um, I saw a, a very a radical shift in the kind of tenor and um, approach to the protests. So I certainly didn't feel fatigued. It, it felt different every time. Um, I will say that I just, a few of the protests that I went to were in the same area. And so that was a little just sort of like visually disinteresting for me. And I was very cognizant of trying to have, a, you know, how to work a, some, a diversity of like visual perspectives into the images so that it doesn't kind of have the same kind of symbols, and, you know, like of the, the surrounding area and things like that. So really trying to sort of push myself to work beyond the like limits of this particular environment was the thing that I was struggling with. But generally, I would say that covering the protests has just continued to be um, an incredible experience. It's a it's a civil rights movement of our time, certainly of my time. And um, seeing how extensive and how consistent people have been is it's just that's really remarkable I think as as an American citizen I feel that way and as a journalist I feel privileged to be able to cover this Absolutely. moment. Uh, let's go to you Zach how, how you've been you know obviously you've been uh, covering this for quite a while and, and kind of talk to us about you know your experience with this and, and where you're at now. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been lucky enough to be able to uh, cover it in uh, three different cities. Uh, I was uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, I was uh, then uh, went to D.C. Then I went to uh, Richmond, Virginia, which uh, might be heading back there uh, again soon. Um, but uh, it's it's certainly I the crowd every day in Minneapolis was a different day um, because they even within Minneapolis there was like three or four different spots that people would convene. Uh, one would be the place where George Floyd was murdered. Another place would be where the that 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 famous target was uh, was burnt um, and basically wherever police would start to gather then counter protests or I, 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 I often now have started considering police is do, police doing their own protest and that people are actually now just counter protesting yeah. police um, at this point considering they've you know decided to start most of the violence that has happened I just watched this fantastic New York Times investigation onto uh, the terrible uh, cornering of a bunch of protesters um, along a highway and where they tear gassed and pepper sprayed and then oh, beat geez. them and shot them with pepper. It's incredible. I highly recommend it. I think it's on, it might be, it should be on mm -hmm. their front page right now. Um, but so every day has been different. Um, DC was mostly in the same, in the same area in the area in front of, um, in the front of uh, the white house. And it's been, it was interesting to watch kind of step back. I didn't take as many photos at uh, the DC event, uh, even though there was a large number of people, uh, mainly because it was it was more interesting to watch the interactions and kind of wait for moments to happen as they laid out. Like I happened to see all of the, when they, they spray, they uh, uh, painted uh, Black Lives Matter across the road. After that, right. I was able to actually watch it slowly take place when they at when the active there added um, um, added mm -hmm. defund the police so black lives matter equals right. defund the police and watch you know people walk in with paint rollers people walk in with whatever and I kind of documented that I think I, I put together a piece on mm -hmm. visu.news about it um, but then in then in Richmond Virginia um, it was 
at least what I was covering was mainly in, in the one spot around the Robert E. Lee monument. And so there, since when I was there, there wasn't the huge number of peoples. It was a couple quiet days. Um, I decided to kind of take a different approach in that uh, I did like some time lapses of people you know, moving around, people spray painting, people covering things. Um, and then also kind of try to talk to people a lot more, usually off camera, because uh, more and more people are becoming concerned about police using uh, the photos mm. that we take of people and the videos and so on, um, using them to be arrest, you know, arrest them, pull them around later on. And I did witness some people co uh, committing criminal, I guess, criminal acts. Like um, I'm working on a piece right now about uh, them literally Dude. chiseling yeah. away at the uh, at the monument at the base of the monument. Um, I actually have a couple pieces of it. I'm, <laughs> I'm a strong proponent of pulling down Confederate monuments. I won't. I won't hide that. So, uh, which Take is, them all I guess, down. probably no surprise to anyone. Um, yes, <laughs> but uh, but yes. I mean, it's it's been luckily like I spent like three days at each one of the places, and um, it's been like a long enough time to kind of like get into it, but then you know refresh and kind of go to a go to a different story. Um, back during Occupy Wall Street, I remember I did get somewhat bored during the at least the early days because it was mainly the same couple couple you know like 200 people or so before kind of numbers really gained and it's like there's a certain point when there's only so many times you can take photos and video of of people you know playing drums and um talking about the same issues and you know and literally i probably have a photo of almost every person that was there yeah. <laughs> at a certain point because i was covering it every single night for you know for weeks um but yeah, but I, I find now, especially now that I'm kind of okay with doing, like trying out different things um, and trying to be maybe a little bit more artistic with the work as opposed to like, I'm only covering something if it's happening, you know, like maybe mm -hmm. trying doing portraits or, yeah. or other things like that, that, that might okay. bring it along. Cool. So. Cool. Yeah. So I, that's, that's interesting. Cause it's like, you know, you get the, the typical protest shots, right? You know, the, the people in large groups chanting and cheering and, and advocating for their cause. And then it's like, you have to now figure out different aspects and ways to cover that. Did you take that same approach when you were covering Occupy? It's 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 interesting now because um, I, I've allowed, um, not, to some extent, yeah. Um, towards the later days and weeks of the uh, after weeks, I started being like, okay, I'm going to sit down and spend some time mm -hmm. and interview these people and talk to them and take porch try to take like a genuine portrait, be like you know, moving them maybe a little bit so the background is, is the correct, if the light's right or something like that, as opposed to most of the time, if I do do a, a quote-unquote portrait, I, it you know, just using my 35 millimeter yeah, lens at yeah. one four, you know, like super basic and moving along and not really discussing too much. Um, but um, the fact, the past couple of years I've been working, you know, mainly shooting for uh, wire service. And so you get into this kind of rut of shooting for what they want, what is going to sell. Um, so doing things like, you know, you'd still take the photo of this, the, the sign that has a swear word on it, but you know that they're not going right, to, right. no one's going to use that. Um, which is to me ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I literally watched a news report while I was there of local news where they blurred out the statue. They blurred out the entirety of the graffiti of uh, they did because they did the uh, the interview of um, actually a yeah. person I know um, in front of the statue, but it has swear words on it. So they literally pixelated mm -hmm. the entire background out, and it was local news. And it was just like I can't believe we're really at this. Like we're okay with 
showing George Floyd getting murdered on loop, but having a swear word on the screen for in the background, yeah. like briefly, yeah. as a part yeah, of a news of story, is is okay is not okay. Like this idea that like we were joking off our, beforehand. Our morals about, are all confused in this country. Yeah, we yeah. got a real more morality problem. Yeah. It, <laughs> It's what that was. That story is one of those things that was like running through my head, and like we were, we, we won't delve into this yeah. today, this week. But, but like about the Bill of Rights and the photo Bill of Rights that's out there, that's kind of within our community, um, being discussed uh, very passionately. And I just think about like the number of problems that are so much bigger than than some words of a document that is completely advisory and completely voluntarily. And it's just like you know, massive police violence. I got pepper sprayed in the face, hit with a. Um, hit with tear gas yeah. and hit with thing, and it's just like, oh, we're all we're not going to really get into involved in that, but you know, oh my God, words on words yeah. on a on screen. <laughs> well, the, those are you know the words of the Bill of Rights is like it's meant to protect photojournalists. Yeah. It's meant to like yeah. make the industry a better place and to force the powers that be to kind of consider how, um, especially freelance photographers in crises like the ongoing pandemic and now this, uh, you know, protest movement, how are we negatively affected by that in so many different ways, financially, physically? Um, the I, I worked on a, um, a visual storytellers field survey with Martin Smith Rada and my wonderful collaborator at Ball State University. And he's, all, he's a former uh, photo editor and visual journalist who uh, got his PhD in psychology and now looks at like, the kind of psychological ramifications of working into journalism and mental health issues around visual journalists, et cetera. So he and I uh, worked with Cashlight to put out this survey, and we got over 700 responses from visual storytellers, primarily independent visual journalists, working in the field during COVID. And the stuff that we were hearing is heartbreaking. People are not able to support their families. People are not able to like do the kind of work that they need to do because they're not getting the support that they need from the big news organizations and these various, uh, like I could tell you some of the appalling uh, offers I've gotten from major magazines and newspapers <laughs> to publish photos for $50, $150, or I'm, you know, busting my ass, sending in images at 2 a.m. because they asked for it on deadline. I don't hear back oh from them gosh. for three days. And then they say, oh, we, we did it. We oh went in gosh. a different direction or, uh, yeah, we can give you $75 to publish wow. this online. It's just, it's it's absurd, right? So like, yeah. like I I have two children. I live in Los Angeles. I can't live off yeah. of your seventy five dollars yeah. for my time. Um, yeah. So like, the Bill of Rights is really trying to help bring attention to those issues that not everyone who works in photojournalism is you know is, is a wealthy person whose parents have supported them or who left them a bunch of generational wealth to live off of and just pull in, you know, 20 K while they travel the world doing yeah. photography. That's not everyone's yeah. life. So yeah. we need to think more, you know, critically about how do we support the visual journalists who are trying to bring attention to the most important issues yeah, of their time. And yeah, tell local so stories. Like you said, I mean, the problem is there, there are people who are willing to take those low ball offers for their work because again, they either, are perhaps someone who cares more about exposure or more about you know being published than they do about making a living or again they have that sort of uh, nice little padding that they can fall back on if they don't make a lot of money you know we've seen that again and again where you know people who you know either 
give their work away for free or don't charge nearly what they should. And, you know, as I'll tell anybody who might be, you know, curious about this, like charge something for your work. You know, even if you don't think you're worth, you know, what you should be paid, which is far more than what they pay you, charge something. Make it, don't ever give away your work for free, especially not to like a corporation, for God's sakes. Well, and this is something I always add is that because, I mean, there's so often, um, the only way that, the only way that, uh, um, especially, I'm just using for pure example the New York Times, like a, a publication that right. actually has money to spend on journalism, and should and would actually pay for things, is the fact that one of the only ways you actually get a lot of these places to uh, respect you yeah. is by charging, it, and and they will respect your work because right. they paid for it, um, and so they won't just like slapdash put it up there or or just use it in a in a in a you know in a less than respectful way or something like that and. You know, and the fact that like I, I actually spent a lot of time on Twitter. I, well, I spent a lot of time on Twitter just in general. But um, <laughs> but spent a lot of time on Twitter. Anytime you see somebody posting a video, and then right underneath it, there's the the vultures of of journalism jumping in there and be like, "Hey, can we use this uh, for local news uh, for in perpetuity and whatever?" And I'm like, "Just charge $150. That's it. Like, just do that." If they won't do it, then they don't get it. And then one one of their news public, well, like one of the local news stations, yeah. will pay the money. And then you'll get, you'll make, they'll make sure that you get the the right credit. They'll make sure that you have a right then to kind of have a say in the conversation of how mm-hmm. it's being used. Um, like that's something that I, I took, a, I, I learned over the last couple of years is that like, there's a reason why contracts are really right. good mm-hmm. to have. Um, even if yeah. it is just a very brief email discussion, you know, not, and not an official yeah. converse, co- contract. It's nice to have that because then you can at least, oh, oh wait a minute, like you're using it in this way. No, 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 no. You don't get to yeah. use it later yeah. on. <laughs> and I don't, I really don't think that enough uh, conversations are happening with young photojournalists before mm-hmm. they get into the field. Like it's all about like, this is how you take a good picture and this is how you write a good caption and AP mm-hmm. style and get an internship. But where are the conversations around? This is, these are extractive practices. You need to think about that critically. How do you engage with the sources and communities that you're photographing? And how do you protect yourself as you're getting contracts, but potentially as an independent photographer? And I remember my first job out of um, out of J school. I was working as a full time uh, photojournalist at the Greenville News and. While at the time I was like, this is amazing, a salary, right? It's my first salary. I'm so excited. The amount of work that I did far exceeded that salary, which I was so happy to get. And I didn't negotiate at all. It didn't even occur to me to negotiate. Ona never told me that I had the right to negotiate. And and then, you know, you kind of, you end up just taking these jobs, whether you're staff or independent, and you don't have the kind of knowledge or resources to to speak to those power those um, power structures that you're trying so hard to to get into, you know, it's like when the New York Times asks you to do something, you don't say, "I don't think that's a fair rate." New York Times yeah. when you're 22 years old, you say, "Thank oh, yeah. God the New York Times knows my name." You're like, "Oh my God, the New York <laughs> Times wants to and publish my work." Have... Right, well, exactly. I mean, I, I've been a big, I've been a, you know, like I, I'm a again, a proponent of the, uh, at least the $15 minimum wage. And sometimes, cause you know, a lot of times you talk to people about our, our day rates and things like that, or, or what we got paid for an assignment. People go, you got paid $450 for assignment. And it's like, well, wait a minute. So I drove mm-hmm. six hours to get there. I drove yeah. six hours back. 
I paid for a hotel room. Yeah. I did this. I'm like, I made $175 from this assignment. Like, oh, and also I worked. So you gave everything. I worked 24 hours. So I made less than minimum wage, less than the federal minimum wage. And I think that most photojournalists probably work in that world, even like better paid ones when you know it's like talk about like 600 hour day you know like the bigger day rates because of all the other work that you have to put in before you get that one day of work per you know every mm-hmm. couple weeks maybe if you're lucky if you yeah. get a you know day rates exist these days you know but and and who is telling young photographers who are new to the industry do they understand what how they're going to get totally screwed over by Taxes? Like, are they putting aside? They Don't worry, they won't make enough to ever percent. actually have to pay taxes because they'll be below the poverty line. Oh, oh, on prayer. <laughs> yeah, but they have to. F- Indeed. Yeah, but you have but you, you have to make have to so little. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And so it's just you know these are the things like a lot of the stuff, frankly, are things that um, are trying to be addressed in the Bill of Rights, things that we saw coming up in that mm-hmm. um, field survey and conversations I've been having with I've been having with colleagues for years and years and years. You know, I was I was definitely that kid who was so excited to be in the industry and just wanted to learn everything and took every critique as like the end of my my like sense of self and. All you know, years later, I'm just like, oh man, I gotta help the next generation not mm-hmm. have that same experience. Let me talk to you about mm-hmm. contract law. Let me talk to you about your copyrights. Let me talk to you about negotiating your rates and your fees. And it's just so much more than you know, not working for free, which is a very important thing to tell everyone. Like, even if you don't need the money, don't work for free because someone who needs the money needs the industry to understand that That's no right. one works for free. And if you do it, then they're gonna say, why I got this guy who had all this great work to work for free how dare you think that you should get paid you know that and it's ridiculous we're we're journalists we're storytellers we're trying to Mm -hmm. do a service here uh and it it just is getting devalued in so many ways and from inside the industry you know there's i hear so much talk about how the lack of public trust in media and well we're doing that to ourselves It's, it's not happening just because of nonsense that politicians say Politicians have been speaking nonsense about the news media for a very long time. Um, We are actually losing, I think, public trust in in us because of our own actions. Our like our our standards are getting lowered because of the digital realm. We're trying to do things too quickly. We're getting things wrong. We're not considering how the work that we do might affect the people that we're speaking about. We just aren't doing the bare minimum of what our publics and our audiences need, and that's why they're losing trust in us. And I think that's really, really important for visual journalists. So, so no, about. I was going to say on Sorry, that note, is business law, or not business law, but is sort of the economics and in, in, uh, business of our jobs something that is part of the fundamental courses for photojournalists now in, in terms of what, you know, or do you, is that just basically you teaching it because you want to teach it? Or has it been more, I would say, prevalent throughout education? <laughs> you know, I honestly, I can't, I can certainly say that I mm-hmm. was not taught that, uh, but I have been out of undergrad for right, yeah. a very long time <laughs> and and now that I'm teaching in a journalism program we we say that we're platform agnostic and we're very digital focused so we we're extremely expansive in the approaches that we're teaching to our journalists but I we don't really have a business of mm-hmm. journalism class at okay. our in our department um, as we grow, we're, we're a relatively new journalism program, so as we grow, that's absolutely something that I'm going to advocate for and push, um, and that is something I do teach to my photography students. 
I think that every journalism program should have that alongside. I, I've often taught, um, I've taught at the community college level and also at art institutes um, of photography. And we often have a portfolio class where you're talking about your digital presence. What do you put on your website and social media? But we, in my experience, again, this is limited. Um, there's less attention paid to the importance of understanding budgeting and contracts and invoicing yeah. and things like that. Luckily, we have organizations like NPPA, ASMP, um, PPA that that help kind of give that knowledge, but you have to pay for those things. And a lot of students and emerging photographers can't afford that. It was years before I could afford those right. memberships. And it's still, every time I go to, to sign up again, I'm like, oh, already? It's been a year? Mm-hmm. Damn. <laughs> you know, it's just... Uh, yeah, all these fees yeah. going out to these organizations. Again, I appreciate the work that they do, yeah. but it's a hit if you're a freelance. What would you say, or, or where would you turn those people who may not know what their, their product is worth uh, to, like, is there a calculator or something online that you would recommend? Like, you know, if I'm just trying to do this job, I haven't been in business classes, I don't know how to charge for my work, where would you send me, and how would you, di- you know, determine I, I price myself? Mm. Well, like I mentioned, ASMP, um, and I believe NPPA has some stuff like this as well, offers a lot of really good things for budgeting and considering contracts, especially putting together a, a, um, a bid for, for okay. mostly commercial work. Um, I think that there's a lot more support for commercial photography and figuring that stuff out than there is for photojournalists. Like, I, I actually think that there's a a kind of lack of that space in professionalizing photojournalists and and thinking of the sort of all the angles of what that work looks like which is interesting because it's one of the most poorly paid photography you know so it's like that's cool that i can go and find out how to do a hundred thousand dollar bid for nike or you know whatever um, and definitely, you know, having done bids like that, uh, or, you know, put together bids like that, it's very helpful to have a frame of reference. But even just the basics of writing an invoice to, you don't have to invoice New York Times, so they have a handy, dandy internal thing. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, New York Times. Um, but writing invoices to all of these other organizations, um, I don't know where to send people to learn about that. They should definitely read a photo editor. Um, I think that's a great resource that's been around for a long time and something that I've used across various, um, like at various levels in my um, professional career. And what would you say, Zach? I don't know, what has been your experience um, with go to so, find that? Uh, first off, like follow Todd Bigelow. Um, uh, he is a photojournalist uh, who also does uh, the business of photography classes. Uh, I sat in on one of his things at um, uh, the short, uh, short course um in uh, New Jersey, it was about two years ago, last year. I, I have no idea. sense of time is gone. Um, <laughs> but um, he definitely a good person to follow. Uh, Business of Photography, I think it's called, is a photo group um, that I that basically is it Photo Business Sense. Um, I think it's there's a I think it's Photo Business Sense. Uh, each separate word. Um, it's a it's a to ask it in but I, I, don't, I don't see as long as you have proof that you're basically to some level of photojournalist if somebody checks you get in um and what i see a lot of people do is basically go like hey i just got this assignment never to, you know kind of like give a short thing and then people will 
mostly people who have uh, you know pretty good experience in the field will be like, okay, well, don't ask for less than this, don't do this, and nobody gives specifics because you know no one unfortunately in this industry does that. Is gonna give me like, okay, well, here's what I got from them last time. They'll give generalities, which will help, or sometimes you know you'll go into direct messages and and kind of talk off there. There's also um, a, uh, uh, a couple program soft pieces of software uh, called uh, uh, PhotoBiz uh, with an F, F-O-T-O-Biz, uh, PhotoQuote. Um, basically, it will give you uh, industry standard pricing photography. Uh, other, the other one will give you base contract info. So it will give you a template on what to send them if they're asking for a contract. Um, and... Uh, the the last big thing is um, the last big one is basically the rough idea is that if you're if you're like the New York Times or somebody or a book uh, go to Getty uh, Getty's like journalism side and then find a similar photo that you're doing uh, that that you're doing and you can actually they you can work out mm-hmm. what would Getty charge and then yeah. basically you can kind of go off of that and obviously Getty it will charge a good amount of money or whatever especially if it's like a commercial use or something like that but then you can be like okay so here's what if they were going to buy a photo from get like the big the big new the big photo source Getty um this is what they they charge and then i uh, you know you can decide from there whether you just go straight out there i've never had any luck being like well this you know basically charging asking for mm-hmm. what Getty's charging um but i can go okay well i know it's you know, if it's a cover of a book or something in a book, if somebody asks me that, I know that it that doesn't equate to my, what if a newspaper is asking? Like, what if a lo- local yeah. newspaper is asking? Mm. That's, I'm just making up numbers here, 250 yeah. bucks, you can use it. Um, a cover of a book should be 800 And depending on, because Getty also, you can go through the whole thing and mm-hmm. be like, is it international use? Is it only U.S.? Is it TV broadcast, da, 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 all the different options if it's going to be used in a documentary and so on. And so that's helped a lot um, with that. But the biggest resource, honestly, has been uh, different Facebook groups that I've either just followed and kind of paid attention to or sometimes myself asked, like, directly. Like, that's the other thing, too, is don't hesitate. If you have a friend, if you have build relationships, I think is one of the biggest ways. I, I'm a, I, I never went to J school, never went to, I, went, I have a political science major. Um, so I have nothing related to, never even, t- I took, I think, two weeks of journalism classes in my entire life. Um, so I never had any of the connections. But like the biggest things that has been able to help me is just making those little connections. I have a bunch of friends made from NPPA, made from, you know, just being out in the street and talking to people. And if I know that they they've worked for a publication that is now asking me for it, I go, hey, I'm thinking about charging this much money to them uh, mm-hmm. with these with this thing. Do you think that's a good idea? And most, you know, I mean, like I have, I have close friends mm-hmm. that'll be like, charge yeah. this much. <laughs> like, just be like, you have to charge this. Like, I'm really, I'm really honest with everybody. I'm like, look at this is how much I charged. I think you can charge more, or you know, and that sort of thing. So I mean, like, that that's one of the biggest things is like make make uh, friends as quick as possible that will are willing to, you know talk amongst yourselves uh, is one of the yeah. most important things is and that's something that's unfortunately really kind of it's always feels like frowned upon within the freelance industry because yeah. I mean like there's there's a website for writers if you're a journalist called who pays writers uh, started out as a, just a tumbler and then it turned into a, a full database of people will be like okay well I'm gonna work for the Jacobin uh, what do they normally charge and it's this you know this 
couple of cents per word is what they what they'll pay um and then you can figure out things from like that i think that there's another one that's who pays photographers that you can go through and it kind of gives things like here's how long they're going to take to pay you here's you know how responsive they are with different things because i mean there's always other important things like if somebody's going to pay me in two in in less than two weeks my, I, I know that shouldn't be that way, but like my rate is sure. always a little that's bit not, more flexible. Yeah, that's not an issue. <laughs> um, if you know, because I'm like yeah. five hundred dollars now is is just as is is about as just as useful as seven hundred dollars in right. in some time in the future. <laughs> so, but um, I mean, but those are always things you got to kind of consider when if you're working for a place more than just once out of the blue uh, yeah. when they buy your photos. Um, but yeah, that's a really <laughs> yeah, long no, answer. I'll, but yeah. I'll advocate on the the Getty yeah, the, uh, or the AP or any of those um, those definitely those picture houses. You know, the ones that publish and have their calculators use those as a good litmus. Um, and then, of course, you have to take yeah. into consideration the publication or the um, entity that wants your imagery. Obviously, uh, a smaller company might not have as much of funds or resources to pay you as much versus perhaps like. The national news or you know an international entity but i would also say don't lowball yourself don't um undermine your own work uh, and especially look at what you have if you have something that is like exclusive or if you have something that's very sought after you know don't be afraid to charge more than you think it's worth because i think another issue we have a lot in this industry is people don't think that they don't value their own um, content as much as it should be or as much as what it really is worth and you know yeah. you have to consider for the larger companies they have a large budget to afford to pay for you know whether it's video or photo they, they have a budget for that um, so definitely don't lowball yourself and you know if you have something that's extremely exclusive or highly sought after you know pit the companies against themselves you know create a bidding war around your work when I worked as a uh, photographer for a photo agency in New York City that's what we would do if I had something exclusive you would go to one magazine or publication and say, hey, I have this. How much would you like for it? And then you go to the other publication and say, hey, I've got this. I'm being offered this. Will you offer me more? It's, you know, it's again, if you have that kind of content and you have that luxury of time, then that's, you know, that's kind of one way you can get more for your work. You were going to say something, Tara? <laughs> uh, the ah, luxury yeah. of time. Well, if you don't have, <laughs> what is that? you know, if you have an agent, <laughs> your agent can do that for you. But obviously, then you're paying for your agent to do that, and then you have a cut between you and your agent. And it's yep. just like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, there's the rub <laughs> off of the agent. Um, I, I was just going to follow up with what Zach was saying that the who pays photographers Tumblr. I don't believe it's been updated since 2018. I just checked it again. I hadn't looked at it in a really long time. Yeah, it looks like 2018 was the last update there obviously mm -hmm. tumblr uh, goodbye tumblr but um there there are also a lot of um kind of databases i've seen produced by certain groups that you can look at that together if you are part of that group which isn't you know publicly available so i think that we need to have a lot more publicly available information around yeah. rates and just there there's really no there's no reasonable or like rational reason for why newsrooms can't just say this is my day rate it's 600 it's 450 plus mileage so much of that is consistent you know the the thing i wonder sometimes is are they actually making like are some photographers getting paid more based off of who knows what like reasoning why don't they want to just make that plane 
And the more secretive things like that are, the more possible it is for infringement mm-hmm. on rights and 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 you know overstepping the the kind of ethical boundaries within the organization itself. So yeah. I think that clarity and um, transparency should be that is what journalism is supposed to be, right? So why are we why are we hiding and being so not transparent about? the rates that photojournalists are making or that write, independent writers are making. We shouldn't have to beg for that information. And we shouldn't have to wait for it to be brought up. You know, this is the thing I hate when I'm getting assigned from a new organization and they ask me everything. My availability, like basically the job's booked and then I have to say, but what is your rate? I shouldn't have to actually do that. You should be mm-hmm. offering that rate up front. It should exactly. be part to ask and I do get emails like that which I deeply appreciate thank you for all of this information including how much you're going to pay me for my time and my expertise awesome I appreciate it you would probably want that right like as as a professional everybody wants that so why why can't this just be kind of the standard I actually wanted to circle back to the photographic protest thing Zach I um I I only photographed a little bit of the Occupy uh, protest. I was in Atlanta at the time, and they had a kind of small, I would say, uh, gathering of folks for that particular intervention. So I'm curious, as someone who you mentioned earlier that you made a career out of photographing activists, did these protests feel different to you? Like, how? what has been your experience around this particular protest movement, especially across the three cities? Because I... I asked because I felt that the protests, especially early on, felt incredibly different than any protest I'd ever attended or covered. So yeah. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. I mean, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I covered Ferguson as well. So there was the there were some similarities there. But Ferguson felt very different. Um, I mean, I think one of the big things is is that um, it's not a, it's not like 80 percent white. <laughs> that's one of the biggest things like covering you cover like what you know the large organized you know things like the march for science and the women's march or whatever you go you go to these and it's like just a sea of whiteness um and that's part of privilege that's part of being able to, to have a day off uh you know being able to go and cover this you know be be part of a protest especially being potentially arrested or having you know fines or whatever that that's a big reason why you know that that's been a thing Occupy, even in New York City, was, I would say, 75% um, uh, white. And, I, again, I think that has a te- the tenor of the type of protest it was a little bit. But, like, seeing this is the fact that it has been, while it, it is definitely focused on um, police violence and, uh, like, bl- the general idea of, like, around Black Lives Matter, it has been, like, fantastically diverse. Like, ages... Um, uh, age, race, everything across the board, um, and the also the lack of. I'm trying to figure out how to say it. Um, unlike Occupy, where it was a quote-unquote leaderless movement, even though there was leaders um, and organizers and things like that, this seems to genuinely be a lot more leaderless. But still, like m- decisions are made as they moved along. Um, that's, that's uh, very much in Minneapolis. Like there didn't seem to be any, like one person that was like, okay, we're going left, we're going right, we're going whatever decisions were quickly made. And then kind of, uh, as, and it allowed the protesters to respond to the actions of police and which were continually changing 
and evolving and the kind of leadership or the kind of like what the mayor was saying or the governor was saying about what was going to happen to the protests or how the response was, it ha- was able to evolve very quickly. And I think it allowed it um, to not just be a because one of the big things I always really worry about is that there's a big day, whether it be, you know, oh, there's, you know, riots again, not using the term riots in a negative or positive sense, just, you know, the description of it, like happening. And then the next day there might be a big protest. And then after that, it dies right out. Like not, there's going to be numbers. This continued on. And I think that had to do a lot with the fact that there was a large number of people who from all different walks of life and kind of different ways of activism. There's definitely a lot of people who were there. This is their first time ever being an activist. And then I could tell you can always just, you know, spot them and like, you're like, okay, this person's, this is what their life is. Like, this is the, this is Antifa in quotes, you know, like this guy, this guy or woman or person, whatever, like this person does this, like this is, they, they work a job and then they, they spend the nights doing this and that sort of thing. Um, And, you know, the one thing that, uh, you know, that kind of brings every protest together though, was um, I, I was kind of worried because I heard so many responses, especially from New York city photographers about how the, how activists were responding to photographers um, specifically, but journalists as well. Um, print journalists as well. Um, but I actually uh, found that they, they saved my butt. Um, I got pepper sprayed in the face um, and then uh, they pulled me back, like to help me um, and to get me out of the area because the police were res- immediately responding with um, rubber bullets and shooting above our heads, which is not only illegal but incredibly dangerous. Um, we had a, a photographer colleague of our uh, Linda um, uh, lost her eye um, because uh, at that at that same evening, actually, they shot her um, straight in the face um, and. Um, but um, the protesters were very, very helpful to not just make moments, which, you know, is not something I'm usually I'm, I'm a fan of, but um, but helpful to make sure that, like, we were part of um, we were part of the uh, not not just part of the moment, but also just being safe and continuing to be able to do our job, um, you know, offering water once I got pepper sprayed offering i got ended up getting a car ride from two activists out of the area because the police were shooting tear gas in the area and so like i ended up finding like everyone was very i mean there's occasional people um like even i had a i had a uh, a person dressed as a medic like an anti-fascist again in quotes for people who are just listening anti-fascist medic like dressed up like that he took a swing at me and another photojournalist and was yelling at us to stop taking photos even though we weren't taking photos of him um but he was immediately swarmed by protesters who said no and protected us again and so like I, I know that this happens, you know, like, you know, my West Coast photojournalist friends will say there was like, oh, there's a lot of, you know, activists that will, uh, you know, use physical force to get photojournalists out of an area. But like, I never had that experience whatsoever in three different cities and was completely welcomed. And that um, that I think was one of the biggest things that I that I noticed is that people I think that there's there's. A couple different groups uh, like within within the within this activist movement. There's obviously the people that are worried about photojournalists, and I totally understand that uh, when it comes to like legal repercussions and that sort of thing. But the the big one is I think that I think that there's a, enough people out there that realize that our photos um, 
whether or not we just put them up there as a news source and upload them to a wire service or whatever, the other photos are the way the rest of the country is seeing what's happening on the ground. And that can, A, protect them and also be helpful to them. Um, and and so they've, they've, I think that that's something to realize that I think that with Occupy, that took a long time. Um, like I had to get, I got arrested <laughs> and beat up at Occupy and, um, and even had like tried to talk to them and like, look at you have to like respect photojournalists because we're the ones that when photos come out that those are the moments that change how Occupy was viewed by the rest of the country. And, and so I think that people, obviously you have a lot more media savvy, I think just the youths <laughs> um, of, of the activists, like they understand, um, the media better than I think even a lot of photojournalists do. Um, but yeah, I think that absolutely. they understand it better than even some of the old guard, because even Occupy had, had a older guard with them of, uh, of activists, like from the, you know, they were still like from the seventies and the eighties and the nineties, like they were still around, um, at Occupy. And, but now those people aren't at least taking kind of like leadership roles or, or kind of that sort of thing. And they're led by literally people that, I, I'm pretty sure the handful of conversations I had have never actually been involved in activism before, um, at least in any large sense, and like as, as we're seeing now across the country still. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I also, I mean, I think all of that is, those are really great points. And the thing is that I think that protesters and just people, the public in general, responds to the way that you are approaching them and speaking to them and photographing them. And, you know, if you're being aggressive or rude or uh, like I've a lot of times um, this has happened to me actually three or four times just in the last few weeks of photographing protests Um, certain photojournalists don't interpret me as a professional photojournalist Uh, (laughs) you can imagine why and they push me out of the way stand in front of me things like that Mm -hmm. I just photograph them doing those things um, and kind of follow it away but when when the public sees photographers acting that way, as if they, you know, have more right to be mm-hmm. in certain places than others, as if yeah. they don't have respect for the people they're photographing, I think those are the people who draw the ire of some some people. And so it's not it's not that all everyone respects photojournalists or people don't. It, I think it really has a lot to do with mm-hmm. how we comport ourselves yeah. in front of people. And if we're yeah. being respectful and thoughtful, then I've never really had any issues with, I've experienced a lot more aggression from my colleagues in the field than I ever have from um, people I'm photographing. Well, I think we're going to, I think we're going to lose Zach, right? Or Zach, can you stay on longer? Do you have to? Uh, okay, like great. 10 more well, minutes. I just want to get your thoughts on this other topic here um, about Fox. So Fox News, of course, the bastion of uh, free press in the world, right? Uh, anyways, they got caught manipulating some imagery that they used uh, from the Seattle uh, protests, essentially to illustrate a photo. They create a photo illustration with, uh, they took three photos and manipulated them together. And, you know, photo illustration is a thing. It exists. You can do it in certain contexts for certain projects and certain things. But it has to be clearly denoted that that's what you're doing. Um, and it has to be, you know, very like specifically used for specific circumstances. And in this case, there was no denotion that this was 
uh, a manipulated image. Um, so they went back and they corrected that. But they still, again, you know, this is a, a national news organization that's, you know, representing this imagery and this story in this way. So, you know, again, I'll throw it out to throw it out to you, Zach, first, since we'll lose you sooner. But, you know, how did something like this happen? Uh, you know, is it is it just because it's Fox News or is it because perhaps there's a, a lack of knowledge and stuff about the efficacy of using photographs in, in stories? I mean, I, I highly doubt that they um, at this point even have a. Uh, a photo editing staff. I mean, this is, uh, I think it, it speaks to a larger issue and the fact that, like, this is a problem where you don't have a, you have, I mean, even the last days of, like, me working at the Village Voice as a freelancer, we never had a photo editor. It was a right, visuals right. editor or yeah. an art editor or something like that. And so, like, luckily with a, with a voice, everyone that I had was trained as a photo editor and so it would just happen to be their title but like a lot of other publications like i like i've said like i think i've worked with a total of like four photo editors in my entire career of 15 years um working as a photojournalist um and obviously i work for a lot of smaller sites and things like that so it's not always going to become a thing but one of the problems is is that ethically they don't know what the you know what you're supposed to do and yes i've had a ton of my photos especially from charlottesville used in photo illustrations and they're always distinctly used as photo it a will say photo illustration in the bottom but it also it's it's art it's not really photojournalism it's like three photos or maybe they'll up the contrast and whatever and usually it will never just be my credit below it um i would have a problem with that as a photojournalist if somebody changed my work that much a crop is somewhat okay even though Again, as somebody pointed out, if they assuming they got these photos from, I think they got those photos from Getty, um, they have in their guidelines that they broke their guidelines. So, like, this person, whoever put this together, didn't even mm. read guidelines, which isn't necessarily surprising again. I mean, on the larger, on the, I guess, either ma more macro or whatever issue, um, I mean, I think that we have to kind of give up on the idea that Fox News is news. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, that... that Who held that idea still? I did only... <laughs> I, I I find it, I mean, obviously local, I feel bad for the local, like, there are a lot of great local reporters working for Fox News, or Fox, um, but, like, the news entity that is Fox News National is not a news organization, doesn't attempt to be, um, and honestly, like, I, all, with all this discussion we've had about MPPA guidelines and code of ethics and everything like that that we've been having, I was just like, really? Because this was a big argument, again, within, like, photo groups that I'm in. Uh, we were talking about this, and everyone kind of had the same sense. We are like, really? Fox News? And I'm like, yet they're still allowed in the MPPA. <laughs> like, I mean, like, there is a certain point where we have to go, you're breaking all these guidelines. I don't know as a, as a news organization, if you're a full-time staffer or whatever there, that you should be allowed in journalistic organizations. Um, like, I think that, like, that's to me the only way that it might change is if you actually shame, if you don't, if you're a reporter who really wants to, you know, do good journalism and yeah, you get that first job at Fox. Like, I know I have a lot of friends that that, that, that was their first job is they got an internship or got like a, like a assistant producer job or something like that. And then they move on and they use it as a jumping place to get to a better news organization. Um, but I think that it has, to, I think at some point we have to start because um, it's not just like one-off examples. I mean, ABC, CBS, MEC, MSNBC, all these places have like one-off examples every couple months or every couple years or whatever uh, that they have like a really big problem um, and they get publicly shamed and kind of move on. But like mm -hmm. Fox, it's like every other day. Like if you just watch their, even their news, not their commentary, which they, they delineate in legally, I think, but like 
you know that no one watching them delineates. I mean, nobody pays attention whether it's John Roberts or whether it's or wait, John Roberts is not Fox, but uh, like their quote unquote news side of things or their nightly hate fest that they have, you know, uh, the Tucker Carlson white power hour and everything like that. I mean, it's just like they don't they don't differentiate it um, in their news program or way that they show things. And like, I think at a certain point that we need to, as other journalists, need to start differentiating it. And not, I, I personally, I won't yeah, sell to them. Um, or if I do, I go, here's a huge amount of money. <laughs> you want this photo? I know what you're going to do with this $5, video. $5,000 for one image. <laughs> I, I, I have done that. They, they wanted a Black Lives Matter uh, video of uh, people marching through uh, Macy's a couple years ago. And I said $800, uh, which is, I, I, you know, it's like normally it would be like 400 or something like that. I'm like, no. Um, I have a, uh, I know that this probably defeats some guide, uh, ethical guidelines, but I have an FU rate, um, <laughs> if, uh, uh, for certain, for certain things. I don't think that things. is any unethical guideline <laughs> at all. <laughs> I, this is capitalism. To me, it's capitalism. Yep. I get to charge what I want with everybody and they can choose not to buy it or buy it. So anyway. And but. nothing <laughs> is more capitalistic than Fox News in, in this, at least in this world. And, you know, I, there's something else I want to point out about, uh, this particular debacle with Fox News is that. Photo illustrations are at their core. The purpose of them is to provide clarity and a visual context to something that is otherwise difficult to photograph. And so the intent there is to create something, you know, out of the different components of the story that more accurately visually depicts what's happening than you could manage to get a photo of. Fox News used a photo illustration for the exact opposite of that. They said, we want to show this thing that's mm-hmm. happening that isn't happening. So we're going to make it happen mm-hmm. with a photo illustration. And the reason why they didn't label it a photo illustration is because they wanted to mislead their audience like right. they do all the time with their words. So, you know, we can't even talk about this in the same, like the New York Times would just ne- never, ever do this. This isn't, and that's not to say that the New York Times is some angel or, or above critique by no means, but they actually do adhere to journalistic norms and they really are actually trying to present factual information to their audiences and that can't be said of fox news it 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 just can't so you know while their mind might be of course you know they're very popular and making a ton of money so obviously there's a huge audience for their brand of misinformation but we just can't even have a serious conversation about things like this because it's not indicative of the trend in visual journalism or journalism more generally of how we approach photo illustrations, it's indicative of Fox News's complete incapacity for truth telling. Yeah, it's like there was the other uh, story that I saw also that was using a photograph, I think, from the George Floyd protests to represent the, you know, there was a buildings on fire or something like that, and it was being used to represent a Seattle story. It's like that kind of misleading, unethical practices is the reason why Fox News gets the reputation, amongst many other things that we just talked about. But going back to your point about photo illustration, and you know, maybe you can talk about, you know, again, what you kind of teach, or either of you can mention. You know, have you had your work used in photo illustration? Have you created photo illustrations yourself? You know, what are your thoughts about the the efficacy of using them in general? Do you think there's any sort of perhaps um, eth- efficacy minefield you might be getting into there? Tara? I've worked on a few photo illustrations with art directors during my time as a photo editor. And they were primarily integrating graphic elements. So I don't, I can't really recall working on a photo illustration that was several photos put together. I remember it being maybe images pulled from it, a photograph in combination with 
that, you know, added elements. So it was very clear that it was a photo illustration and it was always clearly labeled as photo illustration. Um, I, you know, I, I think that that in my career that's happened so rarely that I would think of it as a footnote. I don't, I'm not sure that I even really talk about it too much in my classes, but I can't wait to teach this particular issue in my critical and ethical issues in journalism class. This entire, <laughs> all of COVID and, um, or all of coronavirus and the protest movement, this is just mm-hmm. magical fodder for the critical journalism classroom. Have me, have so. me Skype in on that one. <laughs> oh, I will gladly do that. Zach, don't you threaten me with a good time. Oh, I, <laughs> you I, I, anytime, anytime, anytime. Or Zoom in if you're doing your classes via Zoom, which it seems to be the... Well. The popular thing to do. Uh, how about you, Zach? Any any use of your imagery or in photo illustration? Any experience with that? Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to actually look for uh, like uh, I think it was the Daily Beast or Southern Poverty Law Center used uh, did a really good example of of using one of my photos and another photo um, in a photo illustration. Um, <laughs> like I'm literally looking at a Yahoo News story right now where they. Did things like, so it's an American flag, and then in the background is the Tiki Torch March, mm-hmm. like, you know, those photos. And then three um, three um, presidential candidates in black and white contrasted against the color background and that sort of thing. Literally reading Beto O'Rourke, Cory Booker, and Kamala Harris, photo illustration, Yahoo News, photos, AP, Zach Roberts, um, and Getty, and da-da-da. I don't know why I'm the only one credited, but anyway, um, <laughs> I'll take it. Um, but, um, but still, again clearly delineated there's um, i don't know who could possibly ever kind of look at this photo and go that's one photo like why would three candidates be standing right next to each other two with three with microphones and like to me that's a good good way of doing it um i don't necessarily like photo illustrations in general unless again exactly the way you talked about it like is if it's these kind of vague ideas like we want to use the imagery to kind of um get the idea of the far right um, you know, far rights marching or something like that, but we don't want to be like, well, this isn't about Charlottesville. This is just about something having to do with the alt right or whatever. The Tiki Torch March is the thing that everybody in the planet, or at least in America, probably has some idea and some remembrance of. We use that, and then, but we cover it with some other. Either we up the contrast to make it so it's not a photojournalistic image. Um, it's art, I guess, um, and then kind of go from there. Like that, I'm okay with. It's been used. Like I've had that used a bunch. Um, but like what, you know, I mean, like, I think that like, even what, um, uh, what Fox news did could have been fixed in Photoshop in 10 seconds. Uh, you Degas, uh, blur the background. So it's just a general thing of like, oh, this is clearly like there's, you can see a blockade and then you can see Seattle or whatever this, the area behind it, Chaz behind it, uh, is it Chaz or I forget what it is, but, um, Chop. And, Ch- what's Capitol that? Hill occupied protests. That's what they're calling um, it now. Okay, okay. I'm thinking of a different uh, zone or something like that. The DC one, I guess, is... It, uh, it was, was yeah. the autonomous zone. I think it changed um, name. I change it, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then then put the... Uh, either up the contrast, put the put the guy that's uh, in military gear in black and white, mm-hmm. boom, it's a photo illustration. You don't need to do that. But again, it would have at least walked that fine line of of, uh, of some, some tenant of... of uh, ethics which is what fox news does so often um but i mean like again it's i don't know why you couldn't just there's actually photos all around of people with guns in 
the autonomous zone or whatever it is, the collective now. Like, I don't understand why you yeah. couldn't just pull that photo. And in fact, there's Alex Jones is continually uh, far right uh, radio, whatever. Actually, he's not on radio anymore. So, but um, lunatic um, has been ranting about the um, uh, and the the far right has been ranting about the. There's a African American guy who is taking some level of a leadership role within the area, and he walks around in uh, not in full kit. He doesn't have a helmet on, but he has a I think an AR um, rifle across his chest. There's tons of photos of that. I just don't understand when you have accessible photos that could el- elicit the same level of like <gasps> gas fear that you want from the Fox News. I don't know why you spent the time to, to do this. It's so it, that's one of the you, biggest things about Fox. It's so ridiculous the extent that they'll go to do bad journalism when you could do bad journalism in a way that gets a, people get away with all the time. You know, but they might have to pay more for that to do it that way. You know, there's a, like as I scroll through the Seattle Times coverage or piece on this Fox News photo illustration, something that I think they had done another image, um, and it's a photo from Minneapolis, I believe. Uh, oh, in St. Paul, um, that illustrated this story about Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, called that at the time anyway. And so it's this image of a, a person running through all of these things on fire. It's a very impactful photo. And they're indicating by, you know, the juxtaposition of that photo and that headline that this is taking place in the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. That is egregious and incredibly dangerous bad journalism you know it's it's not just like a mistake it's an intentional misdirect for the audience and i actually think that file photos being used in these ways is a more common and consistent practice across the board in journalism that is incredibly misleading i was when i was working as a photo editor during the ferguson protest um there was a story that the the uh publication i was working with wanted to run about the Ferguson protest being used as a ground for, um, uh, what is the word, when, when you're you're getting new gang members as a recruitment ground oh, for yeah, recruit, gang yeah, members. Yeah. And they asked me to pull just random images of Ferguson protesters who had, um, who had bandanas over their face. And I raised a red flag. I said, you know, we really can't be posting images of these people who are photographed just as protesters in line with the we're implying that they are gang members who are either existing gang members or being recruited and everyone acted as if that was like a a ridiculous thing i was saying as if people don't put the words in the headline and the words in the story together with the image and make assumptions they're like well we'll say in the caption that it's a file photo like that's expecting a level of visual media literacy that we don't actually teach or you know produce in our citizens sorry (laughs) i wish we did that that sounds like a great case if it happened a great case for uh, a libel lawsuit um by one of those uh one of those protesters if they can be if they can be faced this i I have to i have to run but like the one step this is actually something that's like these sorts of things have actually started changing the way that i and the choices that i uh make to uh upload photos to my wire service and it's something that's been for a couple years now that i've seen like Big, the, one of the biggest issues from Ferguson is you covered it, or not from Ferguson, but from Occupy, you'd cover this entire night of protests, um, and like right at the end, there'd be some guy that um, breaks a window, and you get a photo of that. That's the photo every single editor, every single person will pull and use as, well, you know, a, 
a night of uh, night of protest turn violent is the the worst you know never mind protests don't turn violent in my experience it's usually police decide to start doing violence and that's never phrased that way until recently i was very proud i think it was slate um did a piece where like we have to start you know changing the way they change the title or it's like what uh, a police riot happened in in minneapolis or something like that um yeah but, but, but when slate demands accuracy they're just called activism and not real yeah. journalism but exactly no. <laughs> But it, it, that's something I deeply worry not only for my own, like, safety long-term or whatever, but if, like, if people continually to see that my photos are being used by news publications to say that these protests are violent and that, that you have to be worried about Antifa and all these things like that, it, A, in, endangers me, and also on top of it, it, understandably, people who work in this area would be like, well, why would I allow you to get access to me as a person? Why would I do this? And then on top of it, it's just not true. You know, when you cover you know, cover 10 hours worth of protest or activism, and then literally one thing happens, and that's the photo to use that do it. I mean, like, I get that that's the attention-grabbing thing, but, like, that's something that deeply worries me about. Like, I know that those photos sell. I can look at what my, what my PDF is that I get quarterly from the pay rates and what are the photos that sell versus what are the photos that don't. The candlelit you know, simple protest or, you know, the, the wide shot, you know, so showing how many people were there, they don't sell. The shot of somebody punching somebody in the face or doing whatever, that sells every single time. And then I can see where it's used. And it's not used in stories that are, if the story is just about that incident, then I'm okay with it because it's illustrative of that. But again, it's like, it's not a philo- photo illustration, but it is still manipulating the truth and also summarizing, especially considering most news stories only have one photo if we're lucky, or even worse, don't have a photo involved and just use it the to the social media. When you share the link, you know, the, the thing link that photo, you share the which link, is what the link photo, you want which is what grab your attention. Want, you want people to grab your attention. And um, those those are almost always a lie right out the bat. Like if you look at, I mean, again, places like Slade and other places to use example, they do that a lot. But but a lot of news publications will use that photo to elicit the fear, the, the clickbaitness, and then move on. But anyway, and I gotta Zach go, guys. Parts, Ron <laughs> Hamilton joins Great us. Good to meet you, Zach. Uh, Good to meet you too. What is another a surprise guest appearance by Mr. Ron Hamilton, freelance. Well, not freelance. You work for, well, I don't know what you would call you, but you do work for a broadcast news agency out of uh, the Philippines and you're stationed out of Hawaii. Uh, so, Mr. Ron Hamilton, how you doing, buddy? Long time no see. Yeah, it's, it's nice when it's like not 3 a.m. in the morning, right? When we do the show, huh? For you. Yeah, if only there was some sort of resource that had answers to these type of questions that you could just ask. But, you know, someday, someday. Um. <laughs> or Bing or DuckDuckGo. I don't know. Uh, anyways, glad to have you with us, Ron. Um, you know, I don't want to retread our first two topics, but any any thoughts in general on either... You know, I mean, you know, I know you've covered the protests a little bit in Hawaii and whatnot for, you know, your publication. Are you still doing that or have you moved on to other topics? Um, protests in Hawaii are rare. Yeah. Um, they're, they're small. Um, 2,000 people one time in Waikiki. The other daily ones were about 100 people every day in front of the Capitol. Um, I didn't go to last weekend's protest. It was uh, Black Trans Lives Matter. 
in uh, Kaneohe, and I, I couldn't go to that one. Okay. Uh, I, I wanted to go to that one because I wanted to see what population of Hawaii. Uh, we have about a couple hundred black people on the island, and then how many of those are trans, I don't know. It must have been a very small protest. I wanted to go check it out, but there, I didn't go. Yeah, that's my that's my protest story. Okay, all right. Well, let's let's jump onto our last topic this evening, since we are getting uh, close to the end of our show. Um, you know, I saw this story on Petapixel about you know building a home studio for cheap, um, and it it's kind of uh, struck a chord with me because I've obviously been doing this podcast for almost five years now, and. You know, when I started, I had, it was basically a webcam and probably some rando mic that I had lying around. And since then, I've, you know, integrated lights and backdrops. And I've got a professional camera that has a direct HDMI feed. And so you see the the higher quality, you know, image. And I've got a higher quality microphone. So I've built my studio personally over time. And I've spent far more than the $100 that this uh, story says you can build a studio with probably if I had seen this story or if this has existed back when I started I probably would have saved myself a lot of money um, but it was interesting to see again from the perspective that you know I've been running this and doing it and improving it over time and you know spending you know far more than a hundred dollars to make you know good video and audio quality for all of you listeners and watchers for this show and other projects that I've done so it's all kind of you know helped out and whatnot and now with you know the sort of the COVID and with everybody being online and everybody having to do essentially video teleconferencing, you see this from, you know, the big celebrities having to do it, you know, YouTube channels essentially from their homes and whatnot. So they've gone from having absolutely just ridiculously low quality, low, you know, low budget, you know, type of uh, production to now they're, I would say they're slightly above a perhaps a teenager in their bedroom quality level. So, you know, they're, they're getting there. Um, but uh, again, building a home studio, I think, is something that you know would you know is, is kind of more relevant in this day and age, and especially being able to do it for a low amount of costs is is a nice perk. Um, but you know, let me throw it over you, Tara. You know, you do your teaching and stuff like that. You know, you've had to adjust. I would assume in this COVID world, are you doing a lot of teaching online? I was doing quite a bit of teaching online. I'm luckily um, off the the hook for the summer, so able to focus on personal projects and, and writing and things like that. Um, I I haven't really built. I wish I could say that I built a home studio. For example, right now I'm in my. Um, it's kind of a a room in our house that is half office, half my daughter's playroom, which is why I'm so like oddly positioned because I don't want you to see the madness that is her her nonsense yeah. over there. Um, and so I don't really have, and uh, our house is three adults, two cats, a dog, and two children. And so when we're all home during this uh, quarantine period, it's been incredibly difficult to kind of find a place to do any sort of video work. Yeah. So I sadly can't say that I have created my own home office, but I, I have found a way to um, sort of Im- improve my audio, doing Zooms. Okay, and that's good also found a few like spaces in the house that uh, work for that are preferable for doing uh, zoom online 
classes with my students, essentially. Yeah, no, I was going to ask if there had been any consideration about that, because I'm sure, you know, I mean, obviously, we all hope things will resume, resume to a, a sense of normalcy next semester, right, when the school resumes, that you can still go to a, an actual building and see people in person. But, you know, if worse comes to worse and you have to continue doing these calls and doing the Zoom stuff and online training, you know, is there any sort of consideration where you might want to um, up your game, so to speak, with regard to video quality or even, you know, taking audio quality further or backdrops? Is that something like, like that you consider for the next semester or, you know, do you think you'll keep things the same? I will definitely be getting a mic. Um, as as you know, we had some some audio issues and that's been yeah. fairly consistent and incredibly frustrating yeah. just trying to find the right combination of headphones and and my laptop being in the mood to uh give me the audio that i need uh, but i have definitely also been thinking about uh putting up a backdrop because i think just you know trying to negotiate the sort of lighting situations in the spaces of my house it would be much easier if i just created that space myself yeah. and since i you know this is what i do of course i can do that it might be a bit of a pain in the ass for in terms of sort of putting it up taking it down so i'm still thinking through the logistics of that yeah. but i do intend to make some kind of um sort of digital classroom space also it would be productive for me so that i tend to teach by writing on the board a lot and, and engaging with my students um in that sort of like chalk talk way and so I've been trying to think about how do I bring that into the Zoom classroom, which I was I did not achieve by any means at, towards the end of last semester when we were just sort of thrown online. But thinking ahead, that is something that I would like to do for my students. Yeah, and no, absolutely. This coming year, and it's been great to see different camera manufacturers embracing sort of the the current events by enabling their cameras to be able to you know stream or present video directly from the camera it's something mm -hmm. that you know we knew they were all capable of but it seems like they never got around to enabling it you know even my like gh5 my four four-year-old three-year-old camera they just recently allowed the capability to to stream from it from usb it's not great it won't replace what i'm currently using but it is nice to see that and that's the you know thing that i got from this video is that with just a, a few simple items and with just some basic understanding of, you know, how your camera gear works and using aperture, you know, I would highly recommend everybody, you know, use a DSLR, use an actual camera for your webcam. It makes so much difference visually versus, you know, like a webcam. And that's, you know, again, something that can be done for you know, relatively cheap, especially since most people already have the camera. Like, what are you shooting with, Tara? Um, I have a 5D Mark IV and okay. I also have a... Um a Canon C100 that I shoot with oh, yeah. when I'm... So I believe both those cameras have HDMI out, and those could be used if you, you know, again, depending on what your level of desire is, you could take those and, you know, connect that up directly to your computer and use it as a webcam, throw on a nice shallow depth of field lens, you get a nice shallow depth of field when you're talking mm -hmm. to folks. It just, it really uh, increases the quality. I think the biggest thing I saw was the lighting, his ability to use just a few simple inexpensive LED lights and get a really nice uh, lighting setup was pretty amazing. Um, you know, Ron, you're of course using the highest of production quality for your your office uh, home video stream. I do have to say, I'm glad to see the computer on a stable surface, the camera on a stable surface. That's a that's an upgrade, and it's it's at eye level. So thank you for that. Um, you know, obviously, Ron, you're doing a lot of stuff for your um, broadcast uh, co corporation, so it has to have a, a level of 
you know, quality with regard to what you can, what they can broadcast, you know, are you doing anything either in your home or do you just kind of do everything? I know you do on, you can go on your porch and get a nice, beautiful vista of Hawaii for the standups, but you know, are you doing anything with lighting or, or whatnot backdrops to, you know, uh, help allow you to do that more from your home? I, I do own all those things you mentioned. I don't use them very often. Yeah. It's, it's pretty rare. Uh, if I'm on location and if I'm doing a, a commercial type thing with models or something, yeah. But as far as like for new stuff or even for my stand-ups, no, I do that here on my balcony most of the time. Right. If, I, if, I, if we're doing a story on Hawaii, uh, we got Waikiki right here. I just, I, I just do like that, as you saw when you visited. Indeed. Um, um, so, no, I don't have to do that. As far as lighting goes... I do have some lights that I, I have used sometimes to light my face if it's if it's a dark uh, night and uh, you know or or bright light anyway whatever the case uh, yeah I have used lights uh, before um, typically I don't have to and the other thing is when I'm shooting on my balcony if it's just a stand up I'm usually got my cell phone on a tripod and it, it does do uh, a good job with the HDR and it, it does just fine and I can do it like that if I'm in the field I'm using a real camera and um, I'm not setting up a studio in the in the field now. Yeah, yeah. Have you? Um, have, I know you're doing. You know, obviously, you you have the things that you do. You know, that require um, people to be in touch with one another. Have you been embracing sort of the Zoom culture, the online sort of presence with some of the things you've been doing? Sort of, I know you don't teach, but you know, you do other sort of teaching type activities. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not teaching on the internet or anything. No, I, I do that when I'm in the Philippines. I give seminars, okay, uh, like that. My students out there, uh, and I keep in touch with them. But it's not. It's not like uh, like teaching classes, right. uh, like what Tyrell's up to. I'm not doing that kind of thing right now. Um, as far as the Zoom, we have our meetings. We had it by Zoom. Uh, they got nervous about the Zoom hackers, so we uh, switched to another service. Um, uh, I don't recall. We use something else now for our meetings. Uh, but then as far as the stories go, in fact, even the, uh, the live broadcast we were doing, um, I, I'm not involved in that either right now. The live, I, do, I just do packages. Yeah. Uh, but for the guys that do the live, they do it over Zoom. Oh, wow. Okay. If they, if they, they just call on them or, or whatever they're using right now. Whatever, I can't remember what it is anymore. But they, they, they just call them up. Okay, uh, you're on next. Get ready. And then they, they do their report and then they move on to the next guy. Yeah. I've considered using Zoom for this platform, but um, it, it costs money especially if you want longer than 40 minute conversations. And I just, you know, Skype gets the job done. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not hosting a hundred people live at the same time. So Skype gets the job done. All right. Well, I think that's going to, I would, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that I, I wish more than anything I had bought stock in Zoom. Mm, yeah. Four yeah, months ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I took advantage of that back when, you know, back when all this started, I heard about them. So I haven't looked at my stock recently, but I'm sure it's uh, gone up. But, you know, you're always wondering, like, when's the time to kind of pull out of a stock? Because it's like things are starting to sort of get back to normal. You know, by, you know, this time next year, will it be as popular because, you know, people are back in school or whatever? So I don't know. But yeah. Well, I think what you want to do is buy stock in the next, you know, there's, there's absolutely a startup happening right now that's trying to reimagine Zoom, how to make Zoom better for the millennial set with looking at all the problems that we've seen happen during this shift to online. Yeah. And so that, whatever that thing is, that's the one we want to buy stock in probably. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of this week's show. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Tara, for taking time out to be on here and talk about everything you're doing. Where can people find about, about I'm sorry. Where can people find out about more about you and your work? 
Well, absolutely my website, uh, which is www.tarapixley.com. I don't think we need to say the www anymore. Um, but tarapixley.com and also at TLPix is my Instagram. You can check me out on Twitter at TLPix. I don't talk there as, as much as uh, I'm now engaging on my Instagram. So would love to you know, chat with people and engage in the ideas of the day and also have you take a look at my work. Thank Great. you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for being on. Truly appreciate it. And have everybody go uh, give Tara your time and check out her work. Uh, Ron, anything uh, going on in your world we need to know about or anything coming up that we want to you want to share? Uh, shout out to Hannah Kozak, yeah. for, uh, former podcast guest. Yeah. Uh, she got me hooked on the Fuji system now. Oh. I've traded my <laughs> Fuji. Yeah. Wow. Big news. Big news. The Hamilton household here, and it's all because of Hannah. It's not because of Sp- it's not because of Sparky, uh, Sharky James. Mm-hmm. It's not because of Pete Souza. Mm-hmm. It's not because of Ibarian X. Mm-hmm. All these Fuji shooters because of them. It was Hannah Kozak. Wow. Before her, this is a camera for hipsters. This is for guys. That <laughs> I don't care. I'm not interested. And she totally sold me. I I didn't. Think she? I didn't think I ever would be, but she's right. So now I, I had I, I got my new. Um, I didn't buy an XT4. I, I didn't buy an XT. I bought an XT2 because I wasn't too sure about this thing. But I got my 16 to 55, and I got my uh, uh, 50 to 140, and uh, uh, magic. What a great system! Great, great. So thank um, you, Hannah. Yeah, there we go. All right, awesome. All right, well, you can find out more about everything we talked about tonight and every uh, platform that we publish on by going to AroundTheLens.com. You'll find links to all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all that fun stuff there, in addition to this episode's uh, show notes. So you can see the the websites that we were talking about and kind of see what we were talking about there in more detail. Uh, Furthermore, if you'd like to support the show financially, please go to Patreon.com slash AroundTheLens. Donate as little as a dollar a month and get everything we produce ahead of time. I'm working on a few uh, Around the Lens commentaries I plan to post there uh, soon, so be on the lookout for that. And, you know, again, if you'd like to support visual journalism, what we're doing here, it's truly appreciated. But, of course, in this, you know, times, it's not, uh, you know, just just watching the show, sharing it with friends, liking, commenting, subscribing, that's all that's all great and all we really ask for. So truly appreciate it in any way you can do that. Continue the conversation online. We don't want to know. Do you agree with what we're saying? Do you disagree? Uh, go into Facebook and, you know, write in the comments section below this post and, and let me know. Duly appreciate uh, hearing from the audience. All right. Well, Tara, 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 thank you so much again for taking time out. Truly appreciate it. You're always welcome back on the show. Um, so for Ron Hamilton Thank and you. Tara Pixley, I'm David J. Murphy. This has been Around the Lens, episode 230, and we are out. Thanks for listening to Around the Lens. We hope you enjoyed the show. To continue the conversation, head on over to one of our social media outlets, such as Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter. To support the show financially, consider donating to us via Patreon. For show notes from this week's episode and links to everything else we talked about, just go to our website, AroundTheLens.com. Finally, if you or someone you know might be a good guest for the show, get in touch with us via email at info at AroundTheLens.com.